Nice crowd at that time, and it's good to be back after these intervening years. It seems like all I've been doing for the past six months is traveling, all the way from Jamaica, then back out to Phoenix, and then back down to Atlanta, several cities in Florida, uh, two weeks or three weeks ago, Springfield, and I think two weeks ago, I forget now, over in Wichita, and today here in Tulsa. My wife would have come with me, but 13 days ago we became grandpappy and grandmammy for the first time in our lives, and I was able to stop by and see the little fellow, whose name is Michael Allen, and he checked in at uh, all the vital statistics real quickly here. Please, you have to bear with us, old gray-haired people. We get so excited about grandchildren, we just can't help but talk about them. But uh, little Tina, his mother, weighed 95 pounds soaking wet when she became pregnant. So you can imagine when I tell you the baby was 8 pounds, 7 one half ounces, that you mothers among this group who understand about those things and fathers who passed out cold on the delivery room floor will likewise understand when I tell you she had a very difficult 39-hour labor. And we were with her for the last uh, 14 or 20 or whatever of that, pacing the hospital, I thought that I would never go through that again uh, after my three sons came along, but I did, and finally it was all over, and thankfully mother and baby are fine, and the grandparents are gradually recovering. And I was able to stop by and dangle him on my knee a little bit before coming up here today. I have asked for many years on radio and television, what is religious about a drought? I'll put that differently today. What is religious about a trade war? What is religious about $1 trillion imbalance in the balance of trade between the United States and our other partners, so-called, in the Atlantic Charter or the NATO allies, predominantly West Germany and or Japan? How many of you in this room think in the next very few years we will see the United States so turn around our productivity, become competitive with our foreign competitors abroad, primarily Japan and the common market, that we will enjoy in the end of 87, 88, 89, a $200 billion per year trade surplus. How many of you think we will do that? I don't think anybody really believes that in this room. Well, we will have to do that, you see, because the trillion-dollar debt we now owe all other countries, especially Japan, will require $200 billion a year excess just to service the debt, just to pay the interest on what we owe. Now, what's that got to do with church? What's that got to do with Jesus? What's it got to do with religion? Well, I see in my Bible, and I'm going to turn to Matthew, the 24th chapter, and refresh our memory briefly, that Jesus Christ was asked by his disciples what would be the sign of his coming. Reference was made in the song, I will come again, and Jesus Christ is surely going to come again. He's going to come down to this earth and rule it with a rod of iron. But what is to happen prior to the time Jesus Christ is to return again? Is there any way you could know when that time might be? Well, Christ himself says that he's not coming tonight, or tomorrow night, or the next night. We have a brochure by the title, Could Christ Come Tonight? 
I remember clear back in 1954 hearing A.A. A. Allen threatening people in a big tent in West Los Angeles that Christ was going to come tonight. He could come just any moment. I've seen the signs on billboards, barn tops, big flat painted rocks along the roadsides from Nebraska to Oregon and from down in Georgia clear up to Washington State. Christ is coming soon. Are you ready? I've heard the evangelists talk about Christ coming tonight. It's always tonight because many of those meetings took place at night. But Jesus Christ said that a lot of things are going to have to take place before he returns and that there would be certain signs along the way which would indicate to his true servants, whether or not the intervention of Almighty God was near. Now, there have always been people talking about the second coming of Christ from the days of the Waldenses to the days of the American Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War One, World War Two. I was looking back at the history of the Church of God's Seventh Day just yesterday and reading about some of my father's early roots and those who went before him, the William Miller Advent Movement, the Great Disappointment of 1844, the setting of dates, the concepts of various cycles in the heavens, 19-year cycles, 1972, 1975, all kinds of dates by which certain things were to work out in biblical prophecy, and all of those prophecies seemed to fail. When I was first out of the Navy in 1952 after the Korean War, I heard that we were going to be involved in a war with Europe by 1972. That failed, and I knew by 1965 it was going to fail, and began telling the church not to depend upon that, and got into a lot of trouble with the higher-ups, uh, one of whom in particular was my superior, for daring to tell the people in Bricketwood in 1966, this church is not going to go to Petra in January 1972. I was told, in no uncertain terms, young man, that's the worst mistake you have ever made. This is Tulsa, 1987. And we didn't go to Petra. And I knew we weren't going to go to Petra. And I have cautioned the church about setting dates. But these prophecies are sure. They are general trends, general traditions, or conditions in the world that are going to develop and to unfold over a long, protracted period of time between and among nations. In each case, there are going to be dozens of parameters to which you could point various stimuli in global economy, in the weather, in endemic disease, in arms races, in various wars and hot spots here and there, in the emergence of despotism, the overthrow of governments, the emergence of dictators of various nations, building very rapidly even conventional arms, and the constant threat of a nuclear bomb, World War II. And each of these are going to have hundreds of inputs, easily discernible, easily traceable, easily decipherable, in world conditions. Biblical prophecy is not found in a secret code in a whistle buried in a cereal box. It is not something you get by subscribing to some weird publication put out by some two-seed in the spirit, Fifth Avenue leapers and jumpers in Southside Chicago who claim the day of the Lord is in April of 1988. It has nothing to do whatsoever with some guru with 14 Cadillacs and six dozen Rolls Royces from India. It has nothing to do with the mumbo-jumbo of a lot of religious leaders who you see on television. I ask constantly, what is religious about some of these events in the world we see today, and I'm going to give you a couple of them from one book that I brought with me that are absolutely shocking. But to refresh our memory, Matthew 24, he said there would come a time when not one of those stones in that great building would be left atop another. Verse 2, chapter 24. The disciples came and said, when will these things be? Verse 3. And what shall be the sign of your coming 
and the end of the world. Is that sign merely an emotional revival, an excitement in God's people, people producing some little tract saying the Lord has been mightily blessing us, and oh, the Lord has been moving mightily in the church lately? That means Mrs. Spires smiled the other day in spite of the fact that she had a, an accident with her automobile or whatever it means, but I've read that kind of thing all my life. I've read it in old articles that came out in the publication back in the 1930s, and God was doing mighty things. That meant that three or four people came to an evangelistic campaign. But it had nothing to do with what was going on in Russia or Europe or Japan or Asia or Central or South America. It probably didn't even acknowledge what the Pope was up to over in Rome. Our magazine that you can have free of charge is entitled Watch. We took that title out of Luke 21:36 in the Bible, where Jesus said, Watch you therefore, and pray always that you might be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and not only escape, not only have protection from all of these physical horrendous events that are going to take place, for you and your loved ones, escape protection, but also, he said, and to stand before the Son of Man. That's spiritual credentials. That's knowing you have been forgiven, knowing that you're going to be received into God's kingdom. But there's something before that time, praying that you will be accounted worthy to escape. Luke 21, 36, read it for yourself. So we chose that word for our magazine because we also see in Ezekiel, the 33rd chapter, that God was to set his watchmen. Anciently, they didn't have telephones and telegraph and satellites up there keeping track of military movements on the earth. They didn't have mass media, so they had a man with a ram's horn called a shofar standing on the corner of some walled city. And they had outriders and pickets like you would normally think that a military encampment would put out to warn them of the approach of an enemy. And the watchman on the tower was to put the shofar to his lips and to blow a very staccato, rapid alarm. And people would wake up and say, well, an enemy is coming. And they could get the garrison awake and they could get the armed men out to meet them. So he used the old concept of a watchman of the old walled cities to talk about his prophets who would come who would know and understand what is going on in world conditions and would warn people about those happenings which were going to afflict and affect their lives. Now, most people have never thought of Jesus' warning in any context except for themselves here and now. But Jesus gave a warning to a great city, one of the great cities of the world at that time, nowhere near so large as Rome perhaps not even as large as Carthage or Antioch or Athens, but a very large city nevertheless with several hundred thousand inhabitants. He warned them. He cried over the city. He said, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you like a mother hen would her chicks, but you would have none of it. Therefore your house is left unto you desolate. Now he gave a two-part prophecy about the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem. When he was killed, when he was on his way to Golgotha, he was dragging his stake, and every now and then he fell under it. And there were some of the women along the way that has been named, it's about 15 feet above where the real street used to be, in spite of what you see on the pilgrimages at Easter time over there. That isn't the same street that they call Via Dolorosa, which I've walked along many times at all. You can see the old gate 15 feet below where all of the rubble has been piled atop it in the city, and the streets that are there is nothing at all like the one in which Jesus walked, but it's on the same basic site. He stumbled under that stake, not a cross. The Greek word is stauro, 
meaning an upright pail or a stake. Whether it had a cross member is something that should be looked into. But there were some women there who began to weep and to cry. He looked up at them and he said, You daughters of Israel, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves. For if they do this in the day of the green tree, what shall be done in the day of the dry? Meaning, if they do this to me, if they are capable of these bestial acts now, what will happen when times are really rough and when Jerusalem is under siege? Well, Jesus was killed, and the early church got its start in Jerusalem, and it was decades before his prophecies came to pass. By that time, most of the living generation, except perhaps a few, had forgotten all about what he said. But eventually, because of all sorts of political pushing and shoving, because of all kinds of chicanery, of the lack of certain tributes from Judea to the land of Rome, of moves on the part of the lesser Herodians or the kings who were ruling over Judea, the Roman army sent Titus with a legion to take Jerusalem. They ringed the city, and it was said that they were reduced literally to eating the dung of animals and doves. Eventually, those people turned to cannibalism. And while the city was finally being sacked and ravaged, Josephus, a historian who was an eyewitness to the account from afar, told of a forest of perhaps tens of thousands of upright pails on which human beings had been impaled, their bodies smeared with bitumen and the torches set afire. So killing tens of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem, and they burnt through the night so that he said the city and the surrounding countryside was lit up with the burning bodies of tens of thousands of Jews. So think of this prophecy in the context of a young man who said he was the son of man and the son of God, and they warned about the imminent collapse, the fall of Jerusalem, because it happened a few years after Jesus Christ's departure. It happened in 71 A.D. He was killed and ascended to heaven in 31 A.D. It took four decades to develop. Seems like a long time sometimes in the terms of our human lifetime. It seems like a pretty fast time to me in one sense of the word because I've now been doing radio and television for 33 solid years. But I remember very well some of the predictions that were made back in the 1950s when we thought at that time we were living in the 80s, and we weren't. We thought these events were about to occur, but they were not. They were still a few decades away, and we didn't know it. I began to realize they were much further away in the future in the 1960s. And from that time on, I have known that it was going to develop much more slowly than I originally thought it would. So he said, and I'm going to refer back and forth to Matthew 24 in the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation where we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He said, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, and they come in the name of Christ, saying, I am Christ, meaning saying, He is Christ. Now maybe some of them say that they are Christ, like Sun Myung Moon did and some other people, but most of them say that Christ is Christ and shall deceive many. If you will turn, keeping your place in Matthew 24, to the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation, where the mysterious four horsemen of the apocalypse are mentioned, you will see the first of the four horsemen is a white horse, and he that sat on him, chapter 6, verse 2, these are the six seals of the opening of the scroll called the book of Revelation, which is a step-by-step -step development in biblical prophecy. I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. 
Now, the picture of Christ as riding a white horse always depicts him as having a sword, a sharp two-edged sword, never a bow. Some people misunderstand this prophecy and try to say this is Christ. It is not. It is a false Christ. It is a false Christ. You can look at Bullard's Companion Bible, many of the commentaries. I had nothing to do with writing any of them. And they very easily put together the sixth chapter of Revelation with Matthew 24 and show that each of Jesus' warnings, one after another, follow along exactly in the same sequence of events as do the four horsemen of the Apocalypse, which is, in fact, the first four seals of the seven seals of the book of Revelation and are the first four major events, one happening on top of another, one actually being added to another. Don't make the mistake of thinking they happen one after another because they gradually are becoming contemporaneous and they all begin to obtain at the same time eventually, which is called in biblical prophecy the Great Tribulation, Matthew 24, 21. He that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now Christ said there would be false Christs and false prophets, and there have been all the way down through history. We're certainly seeing a great deal of that, it seems, almost ludicrous to mention it, coming to the city of Tulsa, and I will make no references that are unkind. But certainly in television and on national news recently, the American public is just about getting a stomach full of some of what parades across their screen for religion. At least I would think so. I would think so. Are there false prophets? Are there people who would actually make merchandise of the people of God in the name of Jesus Christ? Are there people who would dare to take salaries up into the millions of dollars, buy themselves the baubles, the toys, the playthings of multi-million dollar millionaires and, and live absolutely like kings at the expense of little people on fixed incomes, retired people who sit and weep at all of their uh, carryings on in front of the television set? Are there people who are that conscienceless who would do that to the American public? Oh, sure there are. There are hundreds of them. Caveat emptor. It's up to you to know better. You don't check your brains when you walk in the door. You do not quit thinking when you turn on this or that channel on television. You always think. You keep the integrity. You keep the, the sovereignty of your own character intact. You don't give away any of your mind to these charlatans, these fakes, and these frauds that Jesus said would occur on the world scene, would appear. So the first thing, false Christ and false prophets. Many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. That's many nations grouped together under a particular king like an alliance. That was the next thing he said. In Revelation, the sixth chapter, and in verse 4, there went out another horse, and that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword, a symbol of warfare. When you take peace from the earth, you have chaos, you have war. The red horseman of Revelation, the sixth chapter, the second seal, is war. And Christ said we would have wars and rumors of war. Now, a quick rehearsal. Many of you in this room may well be veterans of World War II. I doubt that there are very many that would be a veteran of World War I. Are there any in here that would be a veteran of World War I that are still alive, quite elderly, I would assume? 
lived and went to war in their early teens or twenties, late teens or twenties, back in 1916, 17, 18, I would probably doubt that. But that was of my father's generation. He was about to go when the armistice was declared. My uncle was gassed in Flanders, and he died only a very few years ago. When I was a boy growing up, I had a neighborhood boy who took me across the street to show me some of his father's memorabilia, the very shiny leather things that he put over his ankles to keep his pants tucked into his boots. I've forgotten what they called them they used to wear in World War I, his gas mask, his funny-looking helmet, all of the medals, the old uniforms that were in a, a chest that he kept there. And I remember seeing a lot of those pictures. I grew up thinking World War I happened in black and white. And I thought in World War I, they all marched about twice as fast as they did in World War II. Because, you know, all the old film had them just going along so fast that it just seemed like they would never slow down. I thought, those fellows are going to be worn out by the time they marched five blocks. But I didn't know any better. Now, you know, I got a grandbaby that was born, and he was born into a ready-made world. He doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't even know who he is yet. He doesn't even know he's human yet. There's an awful lot that he doesn't know. He's just barely beginning to focus on lights and shapes and sounds of voices and sort of turning towards someone's voice or looking at a light spot on the wall. He knows nothing. None of you black people who are here, uh, he doesn't know that many of the white people have attached a very ugly, despective term that they will refer to you as every now and then. He's never heard a Mexican called a greaser or a spick. He'd never heard about the man or Uncle Charlie, never heard about wops or gooks, never heard a dirty joke, and he's never heard about World War I or about World War II. He'd never heard about Russia and communism or Checkpoint Charlie or the Berlin Wall. There's so much that he doesn't know, and yet every one of these things that he doesn't know are going to affect his life. They're going to kind of soil the edges of his mind. They're going to burn themselves in and in some ways sully and pollute his character. They're going to take their toll on a little innocent mind that ought to be taught very beautiful and very perfect and wholesome things. And his parents will do their level best, as most godly parents would try to do, by keeping that one-eyed monster at a certain amount of bay and preventing him from watching the wrong thing. But my wife was showing me just this morning, saying, look at this, can you believe this? And I looked, and they had a kiddie program on that was showing a lot of demons running around. And little children wide-eyed in fright, and demons and ghouls and goblins and so on. I said, you've got to be kidding, and they were showing this nonsense to children so they can believe in devils and demons on a nice, beautiful, sunlit Saturday morning. Well, so far he has seen none of that, but there is so much that he has to learn. You were born into a ready-made ready world just like I was, and you came along and began to learn about history. How well did you learn it? You ought to read some of the literature, especially some of the books that have been done in the wake of World War II of the incredible unpreparedness of the United States, of the isolationism, of the fact that 50% of our major industrialists were urging cooperation with Hitler and the creation of the United States of Europe, of how Joseph Kennedy was urging President Roosevelt to take the British home fleet and to give them shelter in our Atlantic ports and asking England to cooperate with Hitler, of Henry Ford and many of those even in the Rockefeller organization who continued to do business with Adolf Hitler throughout much of World War II, of many of those who went right along with him 
in his pogroms against the Jews, including the culpability of Pope Pius XII and the Vatican. But more than that, you read of the inferior military organizations of the United States, of the incredible inter-service rivalry which doomed to second-class inferiority American weapon systems, American training, American preparedness. When you read the real story behind the attack at Pearl Harbor, you read of one terrible faux pas, one hideous mistake, one stupid, you cannot believe the error that was made, a vitally important piece of paper filed away for the whole weekend when it could have stood the world on its ear that needed to be in Washington. People who acted as if they were so befuddled, so stupid that you can't believe they had the brains of an oxen, and yet we were attacked by the Japanese and the back of our naval forces broken. We didn't recover for about three solid years. It wasn't until 1944 that we began to really recover from the blow dealt us in 1941. By one vote in the summer of 1941, the American Congress passed the Selective Service Act. By one vote in that body of elected representatives of our government did we have the right to begin to raise an army. We, at the outbreak of hostilities in Europe in 1939, were 17th in military power in the world, number 17 down the line. Where do you think we are today? We're number two. We will soon be number three, then number four, and later on five and six. Right now in shipbuilding, where do you think we are? We are 15th. Finland is ahead of us in building ships. But I'll come back to more of that a little later. World War II happened. More than 30-some million people died. In a very strange way, a bizarre repetition of the same events that developed, which brought about the impoverishment of the American people, the collapse of the dollar, the collapse of our stock market, the reverberating shock to the global economy, which impoverished Western Europe, which brought about the collapse of old alliances and the emergence of new ones, brought about the collapse of various governments and the emergence of despotism in Italy and in Germany. And the stimulus for that came from the grassroots people who tend to blame the incumbent government for the situation that deprives them of property and of jobs. The erosion of their dollar, or in this case the German mark, which at one point in time was actually quadrupling and so on every hour, where finally it became so ludicrous that the paper could be sold for more than the mark was worth, and where they were paying them on the hour in the factories in Germany. Situations like that were so intolerable they simply could not long last. And all of this led directly to the appearance on the world scene of a man named Adolf Hitler. In a very strange way, some of the very same phenomena are beginning to occur again. Wars and rumors of wars. How many wars are going on right now? Well, probably we can't even count them on. Most people count them all. Most people wouldn't think of the Philippines, where sporadic outbursts of communist guerrillas in Mindanao and in Cebu and some of the other islands are attacking government forces and killing wayfarers and civilians and attacking members of the army, even though they had a ceasefire for a time. You wouldn't think of Angola where the Soviet Union are supplying the Angola Marxist government, where the South Africans and Americans are clandestinely uh, supplying the guerrillas who are trying to overthrow it. You probably would think of Iraq and Iran, where several hundred thousand have already died, 
and the guns continue to bellow and belch and explode every single day. A very volatile region. You might think of Afghanistan, you might have forgotten it. But the Soviet Union continues to wage war against people who are up in the rocky fastness of their age-old strongholds, mere peasants and shepherds who are trying to withstand a modern space-age nuclear army who is using conventional weapons and nerve gas and biological and chemical warfare against them in the mountains. And you might think of Nicaragua. You might think of American supplies, sometimes clandestinely, the building of a big forward air base in Honduras, which was recently uncovered by 2020 or someone and shown to a surprised American public. The amount of American dollars, your tax dollars, being siphoned off into the Western uh, Hemisphere. But frankly, a lot of Americans simply don't understand uh, how that is necessary and that actually they probably ought to be supported much more than they are being supported. Unless we want to see another Cuba right there next door to the Panama Canal. That's another story. You might not think of Northern Ireland and the continual loss of life there. You might not realize that there have been more than 65 wars since August of 1945, since the creation of the United Nations, since the signing of the Charter, in which nearly in every case a member of the United Nations has been a direct participant. We are living in a time of wars and rumors of wars, and three is a number which symbols finality, symbolizes, signals finality in the Bible. I believe there is going to be a third world war, and that war is going to come from stimuli that I will describe to you today and certain things I want to read from the publication I have brought. This book is called Foreign Affairs, published by the Council on Foreign Relations, very astute publication at the governmental level, although it's a privately funded organization who sponsors speeches and articles of this nature from people like Greenspan. You might uh, note some of these, Walter Lippmann, George F. Kennan, you've heard of him certainly, Dennis Healy, head of the Labor Party in England, uh, Fred Bergston, Marty Feldstein, an economist about correcting the trade deficit. In this article by C. Fred Bergston on economic imbalances and politics, let me give you just a few unbelievable quotations. He says, the unprecedented international imbalances of the first half of the 1980s have fundamentally altered the structure of the world economy. The United States, the creator of the post-war economic system and home of the world's key currency, has become the largest debtor ever known to mankind, and its red ink will continue to flow at least into the 1990s. I'll skip along and give you some of the most shocking parts. To restore balance, the United States must improve the rest of its yearly current account balance by approximately $200 billion. We'll ask the question, will that happen? The vast bulk of this improvement will have to come in trade in manufactured products, something in which we are lagging very sadly behind. The very sector decimated by the overvalued dollar in the first half of the 1980s. What are those manufactured products? Electronics fabrics, telecommunications and electronics. Aircraft is the only area in which we still excel, and the Japanese and Europeans are rapidly catching up with us. The Europeans with their big twin-engine Airbus now being snapped up not only by European but even American airlines, as well as the Japanese who are getting into the light jet with their Mitsubishi Diamond being marketed in the United States, and the other aircraft like the turboprops that are running all over our skies that we see all the time, although predominantly the Japanese have just edged us out in automobiles, in textiles, and especially in steel, and in electronics as we know. 
in all of the various uh, transistors and the television sets and all the things that we buy. Trade surplus of Japan running close to $100 billion a year. By the early 1990s, we're talking only three to four years from now, Japan will be a net creditor of a half a trillion dollars, mirroring to an astonishing degree the American red ink, meaning we will be in debt that far, and they will be ahead of us by an opposite amount. Japan's annual investment earnings will grow to between 25 and 50 billion investments where? Here. In our blue chip stocks, in our big industries, in our banks, in our real estate, in our vast tracts of timber, in our western dairy and cattle farms. That's where they have invested. Japan, therefore, listen to this, must accept a decline of around $100 billion in its annual trade balance to restore reasonable equilibrium. You think they're going to do that? The Japanese say, oh, we need to accept $100 billion. Oh, that's fine. We'll just put half of the people at Toyota, Mitsubishi, Nissan, Datsun, Honda, and Kawasaki out of jobs next year. You think that's going to happen? Now, the Japanese government's already in trouble, and of course I predict that this current one is going to topple very, very quickly. But stand by to see what kind of a government comes along after the next one. The next one will still be sort of moderate. But very, very quickly now, I've been saying for many years, by the way, more than 20, Japan is going to build a world-class navy, and it's going to build a navy equipped with he helicopter-carrying aircraft carriers with missile cruisers. We'll not even bother with the big battleships like the Hai and the Kirishima and the Yamato that had 18-inch guns in World War II, but we'll instead duplicate the efforts the Soviet Union have made, except that the Japanese are far better shipbuilders. They build most of the super tankers. Huge, big, 200,000-ton deadweight ships run by a crew of 15 people, completely computerized, coming into the American ports delivering crude oil from Gulf Coast and Gulf, uh, uh, Gulf uh, Arab states over in the Persian Gulf. These ships will be dramatically different from all previous economic episodes because of sheer size and perhaps speed. It says this, there will be a role reversal between the world's two largest economies, Japan and the United States. It is historically and arithmetically certain that adjustments on this order of magnitude will occur. Let me make sure you understand what I'm saying. The United States right now is one of the biggest military powers. We're the second largest, but we're still one of the biggest. But we're also the world's biggest debtor. Japan is the world's greatest creditor with more credit to her account, but is one of the world's weakest military powers. America still acts like we hand out advice to everyone. We tell every nation what to do and where to get off and when to do it and how to do it, when to stand up and when to sit down, and what they're going to do. We still hand out advice and act like we are of empire status. We are Rome, but we don't have any legions. But we act as if we own the world. How long do you think those roles are going to continue? This man, very astute in economy, economic imbalances in world politics, says a role reversal is going to occur. There is a scripture back in Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter, where Almighty God says of his people, you are going to be the tail and not the head. The stranger that is within thee shall get himself up very high, and you shall be brought down very low. Question. 
Will the adjustments be made in time to avert severe international economic disruption triggered by a free fall of the dollar already happening? It has happened a great deal since this was written only a few weeks ago. It's already happening, isn't it? The dollar is weakening. A lot of our people are saying that's a great thing because that makes Japanese imports much more expensive. You go down here and find out I had to order a personal computer made by Toshiba, the best one I could find, a desktop type, weighs only 10 pounds, carrying my briefcase so I can do my work with a little 8-pound, I, I should say a 10-pound thing with a little tiny nickel-nicad rechargeable battery when I'm traveling around and do it on a little computer disk. We were able to get something at markets for $2,300 through a wholesale house where my sister-in-law works for $1,600. But in only a couple of weeks after President Reagan's protectionist measures are put in place, that same little machine is going to cost about $4,600. I tried to buy it instantly to get in before that begins to impact all of these expensive imports coming to our country. Just the other day on national nighttime television, the CEO, chief executive officer of Honda was being interviewed. He related in one year, as a result of already some of the protectionist measures passed by Congress and by the measures put in by the current Japanese government, who's going to fall as a direct result, Honda's profits had fallen by 59%. How happy are workers when those things happen and they begin to lose their jobs? Will the adjustments be made in time to avert Severe international economic disruption triggered by a free fall of the dollar already happening. A massive outbreak of American protectionism already beginning to happen, right in the wings, beginning right now, or a deep global recession, or all three. Many of you in this room have heard me saying that the prelude to World War III is going to be the collapse of the present-day world economy followed by the emergence of despots and dictatorships and ultra-nationalistic right-wing governments in countries all over the world, especially West Germany, the reunification of Germany in the context of a unified Europe and the creation of a ten-nation central block of countries inside Europe, which will become a United States of Europe and challenge the United States of America. You've also heard me warning about Japan even in terms of a conventional Japan with conventional Navy, but Japan has nuclear capability. Many nuclear reactors. She has already launched satellites and has them in place over our heads every 90 minutes. She already has super-sophisticated, double supersonic jet fighters. Remember the Mitsubishi Zero? This is called the Mitsubishi One, and it's two times the speed of sound, capable of fighting anything the United States has got. The Japanese are going to be heard from. Will they occur constructively, these changes, by a speed-up of growth abroad and further orderly changes in exchange rates, or instead by an American recession which could drag down the world economy and reignite the debt crisis of the third world? It's already happening. We heard about Brazil defaulting on its loans. What happens when you default on loans? Well, think about it as yourself. You're in business, and you were a very wealthy person with a very large business, perhaps a nice farm, maybe a manufacturing concern. And you were in the lending business, and you began to lend out to all kinds of your neighbors. Well, they invested the money you lended in additional properties and in capital expenditures for their small little cottage industries, and they went into assembly line and began to manufacture and began to trade here and there, and find they're making an awful lot of money. 
Well, you decided you wanted some of the good life, so you took a cruise about every four months. You bought you a little condo over in the big island of Hawaii, and you wanted to go to a little island off Australia. You'd always wanted to see the Alps, and you went down to the French Riviera. You began to vacation and enjoy your money. One day you looked around, and all the people to whom you'd been loaning all this money were just up and coming, and they had all kinds of money, and you found out that you were going down, and you were in very deep debt, and that you owed all kinds of money, and you simply could not survive. Now, what would you have thought in the early, early days when all of these creditors of yours who owed you a lot of money simply said, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be able to pay you? Well, that makes you mad, doesn't it? I know a fellow that took me down to the bank and played on my emotion several years ago when his wife died and had the temerity to let me, when I didn't have the money, go down there and make out a note in my own signature for $1,500, give him the money, and then he refused to pay me back. I had to roll the note over and pay additional interest. It took me several years to pay it off, and he's never paid me to this day. I wrote him a letter and said, would you at least just send me a letter telling me you refuse to pay so that I can show to the IRS that I shouldn't have to pay income tax on this money that I loaned you, because they're going to count it as increase. Well, he wouldn't even do that. Now, that does irritate you. Now, I have forgiveness in my heart. I mean, I can love this man and forgive him for it, but it does irritate you. Now, it irritates all of the other nations, the IMF, especially the United States, and some of the big banks in our countries that have been very heavily in foreign exchange, and in investments in foreign countries, when a great nation like Brazil defaults on its loans, and then finally says, we won't even pay the interest. At first, they just defaulted on the loan and said, we'll make interest payments only. And then just last year, they said, we, we won't even pay the interest. What do you think other countries do? Well, the banks in our country, by the dozens, have huge chunks of money, hundreds of millions, a couple of billion here and there, still on the ledger, listed as assets. They're still on the asset side of the record. But everybody knows they're not really assets. But that's the way the banks show them. But they're never going to get paid. Now, the United States is in the same situation. We will default on loans that other people have given us. Can the world's largest debtor nation remain the world's leading power? Question, what do you think? Can the United States continue to lead its alliance systems, meaning NATO and so on, Southeast Asia, as it goes increasingly into debt to the countries that are supposed to be its followers? Good question, something we ought to think, of, think about. I'll skip ahead and, and get through this because it may be a little heavy for you. Just a couple of things real quickly. The objectives of international economic policy in the short run must be twofold. First, the world must avoid an outbreak of trade protectionism of such severity it would disrupt the entire global economy. Is the world doing that? No. The United States is taking the first giant step in trade protectionism, and that's going to result in retaliation and further retaliation and deterioration, and then finally we're going to come to very harsh words indeed, the disruption of political relations between Japan and the United States, and eventually we move from there to military action. It must intensify. I'm sorry. I'll read on down. Second, it must avoid a dollar collapse, but can it, that would ignite global financial instability and renewed inflation. Either of these developments, which could occur separately or in tandem, could in turn trigger a world recession or worse, meaning Great Depression followed by armed aggression. To prevent such an outcome, it is essential to achieve a sharp and sustained decline in, and perhaps the eventual elimination of, the American trade deficit. 
How do we do that? Ah, he says it. You know what the answer is. The move in Congress, the move against the public, so on and so on, the debate seems to be toward a focus on strengthening American competitiveness rather than blocking the access of foreign goods to U.S. markets. And there you have it. Strengthen American competitiveness. We haven't done it since the 1950s. When I talked to the CEO of Auto Ford for every Central American nation, and they had some statements they made down there. Of course, the Spanish called it F-A-O-R-E-D, and their word, of course, for a wreck is potingo, which means a wreck. Well, they had a little cliche they used. F-A-O-R-E-D really means F-O-R-D, Ford. When they saw Ford coming down the road, they pointed out to it, and they said the F stood for Fabricación Ordinaria Reparación Diaria. Ordinary Fabrication Daily Repair. And then, of course, they told us about the Volkswagens that were coming in there. Here were the Central American roads. They didn't have water-cooled engines. Volkswagens had air-cooled engines. Very easily repairable, very dependable. Go for several hundred thousand miles until you could repair them and just wear them out. And the Fords were sitting along the side of the road, broken down here and there. They had another story they told, and this was in 1954. They told this story in Bogota, Colombia. And they said, you ask an American about a product, and he sends you a great big glittering catalog. You ask a Frenchman about a product, and he simply shrugs his shoulders. You ask a British about a product, and he tells you why his is the very best. You ask the Germans about a product, and two Germans show up and say, where do we put it? That's what they said about Germans sending manufactured commodities and products into Central and South America clear back in the 1950s when America was unable to compete. Have you taken a look at the people who work on the assembly lines in Detroit? Do you know what people generally who work at a, a comparatively low wage in the United States, in a huge factory, turning out American steel, American electronics, American automobiles, American pencils, ladies' uh, handbags or gloves or furniture or fabrics or textiles or what have you? People who are in the workforce in the 25 to 44 year age group in the United States of America. Who are these people? Well, about half of them are divorcees with a child or two. Who are these people? Well, they're of every conceivable minority and the majority. They're mixed. They come from every conceivable background and walk of life. But in this United States, predominantly in those industrialized areas where some of these factories exist, which are turning out what we like to call GNP, which is very deceptive, by the way, when they say we've increased in GNP, that's goods and services. And we are a service-oriented society more than a goods-oriented society, and we're not able to compete abroad. Do you honestly think, then, that the entirety of the United States labor force is willing to take several gigantic steps backward to come way down in their standard of living earn about a third to a fourth as much as they are presently making right across the board, produce manufactured commodities that are far superior to Japanese and German automobiles and so on, and do it for less? Is there anybody in this room that really thinks en masse the United States is going to return to a Protestant work ethic, that our people are going to go back to work? Think of the scene at about 5.30 a.m. outside the Mitsubishi factory in the environs of Tokyo. About 6,000 people assemble in the parking lot, and a man gets up on the top of a scaffold and begins to lead them in calisthenics. 
and they do deep knee bends and running in place and doing this jazzercise kind of a thing, and then they stand there with a the flag snapping in the breeze and give it three great big bonsai, and then they rush into that factory, and they sit there and they crank out some of the finest things you can buy. A Sony television set happens to be a better television set than most of those made in the United States. And some of those labeled with American names have Japanese things in the inside of them and are manufactured elsewhere. You go and run your hand underneath the Ford. They've been improving since Iacocca took over. Maybe you go better, it was Chrysler that he took over. They've been improving. But some of the American made automobiles, but be careful, you'll cut your finger. But I'm talking about the, the little areas where the appointments of the way the chrome fits on and the way the hood fits against the frame and the way the door fits around the front of it as well as the back of it and the way the fenders fit to the body and the way the trunk lid fits and the way it all looks inside, the way it sounds. I bought American. I've got a Ford 4x4 pickup truck. I've had it in the shop six times. The drivetrain is absolutely a wreck. It, it just doesn't drive. It has a big clunk in there. The transfer case was completely changed out at their expense, and it still doesn't work right. I'd still like to have an American truck. It's a bigger truck with a more powerful engine than a small little Toyota, but it's not built as well. It's not built as well. We simply are not competing with those people. I ask at the beginning, and I'll ask it again, what is spiritual about a depression? What is spiritual? about the ozone layer, about the disappearance of the Mato Grosso in Brazil, or the disappearance of the reindeer herds, the contamination of the reindeer herds and their milk, and the complete abolition of a way of life of the Laplanders in northern Sweden. What's that got to do with us sitting here in Tulsa on a Sabbath day? Let me tell you right quickly what it might have to do with us. The disaster at Chernobyl was one of the most incredible monumental disasters in the history of mankind. Recently in a documentary it showed the tens of thousands of people in northern Norway, Finland, and especially Sweden have had their entire way of life virtually wiped out. In their annual roundup of the tens of thousands of reindeer, it was discovered that their flesh is so contaminated that they are unfit for human consumption. They shouldn't even be drinking their milk. The levels of radioactivity that fell when that huge radioactive cloud first was detected over Sweden were so immense that the tundra and the permafrost up there is contaminated perhaps for the next 1,000 years. Who knows how long it's going to be contaminated? And it's affecting animals, insects, the birds eat the insects, migratory fowl and fish who come into the area from other parts of the world carry the contamination in their bodies elsewhere. What has the ozone layer got to do with biblical prophecy? Well, why are world scientists in countries all over the world scratching their heads, puzzled, baffled, and many of them afraid, and there have been documentaries about this huge hole in the ozone layer up near the North Pole, where deadly gamma, x-rays, and ultraviolet rays from the sun are bombarded the polar ice cap. They're actually beginning to speculate that in some years the polar ice caps may melt, and every port city in the world will be inundated, and all because of the invention of a spray can an innocent little thing to save us some work so we can spray this and that polish on our furniture or spray something to kill a bug or spray something on our hair or spray something into the air. And these fluorocarbons, which are chemical compounds, go somewhere. The earth has an envelope of air. That air is very, very thin up at about 20,000 feet. There's hardly any air up there. We call it air, but there's not enough oxygen. 
that envelope down here cooks beneath the sun. It's warm here in Tulsa today, but where I came from, it was eight degrees below zero. Where'd I come from? Not Tyler. I'm talking about 16,500 feet straight over your head. It is eight degrees below zero centigrade. That's right. So you see at the tops of the mountains, the air is very, very thin. And most of that air, as we know about smog and photochemical smog and the compounds that are cooked by the sun near the surface of the earth when certain mountains, like in Los Angeles, trap the air and that the sea breezes keep it right piled against the mountains and then the sun cooks, cooks it and changes the chemical compounds into what is called photochemical smog. Many of the big cities are getting smog problems. And so this air, all the spray cans, and there are tens of millions of them in use around the world every single day, has got to go somewhere. And it's destroying, apparently, a very rarefied gas called the ozone that somehow has been a shield that science has discovered that prevents deadly ultraviolet rays that cause skin cancer and rapi uh, the rapidity of the aging process and all sorts of harmful things when men are exposed to the rays of the sun. For some reason, there is an outbreak of additional skin cancer in the United States. And people are being warned to use these sunscreens. People that used to get out and sunbathe are being cautioned, maybe you shouldn't do that anymore, because the rays of the sun are increasing in intensity. Now, Jesus Christ of Nazareth talked about things of a global nature, about signs in the heavens, about great stars seeming to fall into the sea, where a third of the creatures in the sea die, where it's called wormwood, and a third of the ships are destroyed about great avalanches and tidal waves and drought and endemic disease all over the world. He talked about those things in biblical prophecy. A little bit of this in Matthew 24 and the sixth chapter of Revelation again, and to get us back in the perspective of what we're talking about. Remember that the next horse of Revelation, the sixth chapter, after the white, which is false Christ and false prophets, was red, which is war. And we have seen first that Christ said, there would come false Christs and false prophets, then warfare. Then after that, he depicts in verse 5 of Revelation 6, the third seal and the third, the third beast, which says, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances, a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four creatures say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. Here's someone measuring out the staff of life wheat and barley for grains with which to produce food or bread. And a very small little amount, a tiny little measure, just for a penny's worth. And see that you hurt not the oil and the wine. Again, staples, the oil and the bread to make into dough, as women know, and the wine, which is a staple of life. So what is this but a scarcity of foodstuffs. Now we go back into Christ's words. We see in Matthew 24, verse 7, right after nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines. Now what have we heard recently in North Africa, in Chad, Niger, Dahomey, in Ethiopia, Eritrea, and in other nations all over the world? And is it going to happen to the United States of America? Well, the answer is yes, it is going to happen here, and it can happen here and the Dust Bowl of the 30s is going to return, because the combination of what other nations are doing, of what I mentioned quickly in passing, of the disappearance of the Mato Grosso in Brazil, of this great hole of the destruction of the ozone layer over the North Pole, of the nuclear explosions and the pollutions in the earth which are gradually cooling the earth, and when you cool it, you increase drought because you shrink the growing season. 
and the encroachment of the cold regions of the earth is traveling by several miles every, every year further and further south in the temperate zones. I mentioned only in passing the Mato Grosso. I won't spend a lot of time on it, except have you heard about it? The great vast jungle, the rainforest of Brazil, which is just about the size of the entirety of the United States, years ago was attacked by man, who in his greed in that nation of Brazil began a vast resettlement project, cutting down of rarefied and exotic hardwoods, 120 feet tall, some of them, 16, 18 feet through, some of them, some of the greatest hardwoods you can imagine. I sent a couple of our own men down there to Manaus, Brazil, which is way up the Amazon River, and I've been there myself many years ago to report on that for our magazine. You've seen pictures of the discovery of gold, of how they have sent cattle out in there and they tried to farm it. Well, to make a long story short, the ecosystem of a rainforest is in its foliage high overhead. The creatures live basically off the ground. The soil is depleted, it is acidic, it can't grow anything. They cut down the trees, they move people and cattle on the land, and the cattle die and the people starve. And that's what's beginning to happen. Now, there was a great documentary that showed even inside the World Bank there were those who were in favor of lending Brazil all of this money for this resettlement program, and there were those in favor of cutting it off because they were listening to agronomists, to horticulturalists, agriculturalists, to scientists of every stripe who were warning you can't do this, you're destroying the ecosystem of this entire part of the world. It's affecting global weather. It's affecting the oceans. It's affecting the river systems. It's affecting weather. In three years, that vast jungle as big as the United States of America, virtually, will be gone. It's three years away from completely disappearing, and the fools in the World Bank are continuing to excuse it and to finance it. What's that got to do with religion? Well, Jesus Christ warned about a great tribulation, and that tribulation involves a lack of food and growth of disease and the emergence of warring nations. It involves all the things that nations basically fear. No jobs, no food, no shelter, no clothing, disease, the water is not pure, there's nothing to eat, and armed aggressors are coming to attack you. That's what people fear, and that's what Christ says is coming upon the people who have rejected his laws and who are bringing these things on themselves. Next, he said, and pestilences. We look back in Revelation 6, and it says, I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hades, the grave, followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Death, a pale horse. And next, Jesus said, there shall be pestilences. Do you know they say by 2000, this is 1987, that's 13 years away, every fifth man in the United States of America will have AIDS. 20% of the population of this country are going to suffer a death-dealing affliction at the hands of the rotten queers. The closet queens who parade on the courthouse steps and say, we want our lifestyle, us sodomites, accepted as part of organized civilization. 
I got thrown off WGN for daring to say that is an abominable sin that was punished by God's nuclear blast destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, saying they will not avoid contracting AIDS in dirty, filthy, sleazy bathhouses. But if you dare to talk about homosexuals, why, they will probably just be up in arms. Well, you know, they can't fight God. The next time I see a homosexual in the line in the cafeteria, I'm going to go straight to the manager and say, that man's a queer. Kick him out of here. Don't let him sneeze on the lettuce. I'm never coming back. You know that they've actually told... <laughs> you know that they have actually said that they have found that this... How do you get a cold? How do you get a flu? I'll tell you how you do it. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Then you walk out, a little later you go like this, or this. But earlier you'd been outside the building saying, <coughs> Hi, how are you? And then somebody else goes home and does this. Well, unfortunately, and we all know the way we get colds, that's the same way you get AIDS. Not only by sexual contact but by any body fluids, and that includes saliva. Kissing can kill you, kids, anymore. Kissing can kill you. If we had the faintest concept how many Americans are into this thing of ACDC, they call it, for fun, of transvestitism, of homosexuality part of the time, of people who are supposed to be so-called swingers, of wife-swapping clubs, of people who are sleeping around, who are supposed to be, quote, straight, but who once in a while stray from the so-called straight community and then bring that rotten disease right on back into their own marriage. I'll tell you, the Word of God says it in rather plain terms about drinking water from your own well. They have a statement in uh, Central and South America about keeping the horse in its own barn, and everybody knows exactly what that means. It was never better advice than now. Never better advice than now. And do you know that in the state of Texas you don't even have to have a blood test to work around and to serve food? You don't even have a blood test in the state of Texas to get married? Years ago they used to, to, to make a woman who worked in a hairdressing salon take a blood test. You don't have to anymore. They ought to put that law back in place. Any person who works in physical contact with any other person, who works around food, anything you're going to eat, something you're going to put on your body, who is working around your hair, ought to take a blood test. And we've got court fights going on about various organizations who are trying to have voluntary blood tests and so on, and people are refusing to take it because they don't want to get found out. Apparently that deadly organism can go underground, and they're now revising their estimates and saying that if you had sex with some other person who might have had it 15 years ago, you could have that virus in your body, and at some time it could just explode and surface, and you can die from a little minor cold. That's how horrible it is. Are we living in the time I simply lay before you that is spoken of by Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Are we already beginning to enter into the time of the Great Tribulation? The Tribulation is not going to begin with bombs falling on New York. It's going to begin with all these things Christ is talking about of the terrible troubles on his own people. When it talks about the stranger that is within thee getting himself up very high, think about all of Israel, not just the United States. What about South Africa? What about England? What about Canada? 
You take a look at what is happening to many people in our United States of America today who do not know anything about the American dream and other up-and-coming minorities who are taking great advantage of it. If you were to travel to Los Angeles today and drive through West Los Angeles, it would blow your mind. Tens of thousands of Taiwanese, of Koreans from South Korea, of Vietnamese in their own communities. Those long signs with Oriental characters are everywhere. They come to this country and they work. They may not have the old Protestant work ethic of the 20s and 30s. They may have the Buddhist work ethic, but they got a work ethic. They marry among their own kind. They have a strong, tight-knit family group, and they are not afraid of work. My brother-in-law, Tony Hammer, moved over to Dallas, Texas, and he wanted to go into an office cleaning business. And he hired different people here and there out of the general job sector, the work sector, and he found person after person was just completely unsatisfactory until he found a Korean man and wife. And they worked so well that he was able to get another bit, and then finally he got another contract for another building, and he found out they had some friends and relatives. And I think he's got something like 23 of them working for him today, every one of them Orientals, husband and wife. And they work all night vacuuming and cleaning office buildings, and they put away their money, and they save it, and they live close. They've got a work ethic. They're not afraid of hard work. You go to some of the big cities in the United States today, you can't talk to the maid, you can't order food in the, rest, in the restaurant, you can't talk to the clerk at the desk. Most of them have got a foreign accent. You know why? Because Americans are afraid to work. They won't work anymore. And I read from you, I read to you in this book, that unless we turn around our economic situation in the United States by next year and start producing $200 billion in excess over what we are now selling just to service the interest on the debt, then our economy is going down. Do we think we're going to do it? I know we're not. I know better. Now, finally, Jesus talks about that part of the Great Tribulation, which is the martyrdom of saints and about those who are going to be martyred for the name of Jesus Christ. He says, earthquakes would come after the pestilences, and these are all the beginning of sorrows. Verse 9, then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. Why? Why did they throw Jeremiah in jail? Why did he have to spend his days first in a dungeon, later on in the court of the king's house as a prisoner, until the advancing armies of Babylon gave him diplomatic immunity and let him go with the king's daughters and escape away to another land. Because he was accused of being a subversive, because he was accused of being a turncoat, a traitor to his own nation, because he was the only voice who was warning Judah of what Babylon was going to do and giving them God's warning, God's message from God's prophecies about their sins, about why God was going to bring it upon them, calling upon them to repent, and he received nothing but all of that for his pains. Why would anyone in the United States of America want to kill a Christian? Now, how many people, I just have to ask you this, on Sunday morning, when they weep and say, Bless you, Jesus, do you see warning the United States of America that we are going down the drain? You just don't see it. Somewhere there has to be the work of the watchman. I happen to believe everything I've told you today is true, and there is so much more I can tell you about disease. I have not even mentioned crime. 
I have not mentioned so many other horrible things that are wrong with our nation, our national character, our marriages, our economy, that it would take me three or four sermons to even begin to touch the top of the iceberg. It's true. Does this message need to be given to the American people? Is it finally now in 1987? about the time where we are where we thought we were in about 1954. I say, yes, it is. And I say, we don't have all that much time. And that's why we have a work which we believe is dedicated to doing the work of the watchman. I'm not interested in playing church. I'm not interested in a competing denomination. I'm not interested in growing big so we can show the worldwide church that we can become as big as they are and build great big buildings and monuments and run all around the world and shake hands with kings. I'm just not interested. But I'm an Oregon boy. I grew up during World War II. I'm the kind of a person who can still get a lump in his throat when I see the American flag go by. I'm the kind of a person who, when our president gets on and talks about the great hopes and dreams of the United States, I can get a tear in my eye. I'm the kind of a person who can be moved by pictures of farmland in Kansas and by the Oregon seacoast and by the beauties of our national parks. I'm the kind of a person who doesn't want to see the United States of America go down to become number 23 and finally an impoverished uh, nation of absolute uh, serfs and peasants and people who are disease-ridden, who are unable even to fend for themselves and look for all the world like people in Bangladesh or Ethiopia. I don't want to see that happen to my country, to my people, to my family. And I don't want to, that to be the kind of a country in which my grandbaby has to grow up. Now, the only alternative it looks to me like is to be engaged in the work of God of preaching and proclaiming a warning of saying, repent and be baptized, look at what is coming, realize it's coming because of sin, isolate and identify those sins. In the case of AIDS and disease, it's certainly very easy to determine what is the cause and the effect. How many people of you are in business? How many people have built a home? How many people are involved in some of the trades? I know a, a plumbing contractor or two who are here. How many people with whom you do business are cheats, liars, crooks, and thieves? How many times can you depend on somebody being where he says he'll be? How many times can you depend on his estimates? How many time can, times can you depend on the quality of workmanship he's going to do for you? Can you leave materials and tools on the job place? Can you walk off in your car when it's, when it's unlocked? Can you go to bed at night without the double bolts and the little peephole in place? You know what kind of a society you live in, and you know that most people would like to steal what they get instead of work for it. Well, then what are your hopes for the United States of America someday next week to suddenly turn around and be God's people instead of the devil's people? There isn't any chance. So the only thing we have to do is to warn this United States of America where they are going. And in the doing of it, believe it or not, we will be granted immunity and protection. Jeremiah was granted immunity. He, he was a lot better off when he got out of the dungeon, but even the dungeon kept him alive. And when he finally was put in the king's court and was fed with a certain ration of bread and water, he was better off than some of the people out there selling a cab of dove's dung in the streets. And finally, it took the enemies of the country to release Jeremiah. He hadn't said anything against them. He said they were going to be number one. He said they were going to win the next war. 
One time some lady came up to me from Germany, just got all over me for preaching about Germany. I said, lady, wait a minute. I said, Germany is going to win the next war. She was kind of taken aback by it. I hadn't quite thought of it that way. I wasn't preaching against Germany because I say a United States of Germany is coming. Well, I've got to break this off and not keep you any further. We could go on in this subject for probably the next couple of weeks because there is so much to say. I would admonish you to read the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, and especially the part where God says, if you will not obey my laws, all of these curses are going to come. And then compare some of the diseases, the more than 92 million Americans with some registered form of chronic disease that are suffering in our country today. And what, are, what we're seeing almost every evening, every weekly news magazine on this thing of AIDS and what's happening to our economy and all around us. I think the time is getting very, very short. I think we need greater capacity on our television programs for this type of material, for people who write that kind of article to be interviewed, to be talking about it, to let the government and the country see what we're really experiencing in this nation and where we're headed. I think we need to have far more television stations than we're on. We need to have far bigger audiences. And I think we need the help of people just like yourself to do exactly that. Every time I go to one of these meetings, someone will come up and say, well, when can we have television back in my area? I always give them the same answer. When enough people like you want it badly enough that they're willing to help us get there. Now, just the other day, we were able to add three more. One is this satellite over here in Arkansas beaming up to a satellite. Anybody who owns one of those big dishes in their backyard in the entire Western Hemisphere, from the tip of South America to Alaska and out in the Hawaiian Islands, can get my program twice a day on that one station. But in addition to that, we also obtained a station in Nashville and one in Birmingham. I believe that is correct. And there will be information to that. Uh, it won't affect you here in Tulsa, but we're thankful for those two. So now I think we have about 16 television stations with which we can begin to broadcast the message. Well, thank you very much again for coming. I have really appreciated your attentiveness.